All right, I hope some of you saw yourself there on the uh, video. Thanks for sending in your pictures. Uh, there's another version of the same thing, and we'll do that next week. Um, welcome back for our series called 9 to 5, Mission in Everyday Life. The uh, concept, the idea is uh, most of the mission of this church is not uh, on a team or in a committee. Most of the mission of this church happens in our everyday lives out there in the world where we are sharing the love of God with people who need to experience it. That is my conviction, and I believe that's what the Bible says to us. And so that's what we're talking about today. We're going to read in a few moments from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it, or if you don't open the Pew Bible, maybe go ahead and tuck your finger in there, and we're going to come to that in just a minute. Um, but first, I want to start with a question. Is it possible for ordinary work to be holy work? Is it possible for us to, in our daily lives, bring glory to God and blessing to our neighbors, particularly those of us who are not pastors or missionaries or chaplains, but we are regular people like uh, parents and medical professionals and teachers and veterans and retired folks. Is it possible? And secondly, if so, what would that look like? Some researchers from Yale University interviewed a group of hospital janitors. Um, it was probably in the Northeast, but it could have been Lynchburg General for that matter. And what the researchers discovered is that these janitors understood themselves as doing something more than simply cleaning toilets or emptying trash cans. Uh, they understood their work as part of the larger mission of the organization. They understood that they were part of the healing work of that hospital. So take Mike, for example. Mike told them about how he stopped mopping the floor in the hallway because one day Mr. Collins was out of his bed and trying to get some exercise, and he wanted to make sure that uh, Mr. Collins had a safe place that was not too wet or slick to be able to walk and to regain strength in his legs. And Charlene told them about how she strategically planned the time when she would vacuum the carpets in the visitor's lounge because there was a family who would come every afternoon there to visit a family member and many afternoons they would be in there napping in the visitor's lounge and she wanted to make sure that she did not disturb them while they were resting. And then there was Lenny who washed the floor in a particular patient's room not once but twice in the same day in the room of a young man who was in a coma because the first time he washed the floor, the young man's father, who had been keeping vigil around the clock, did not see Lenny wash the floor. And so Lenny wanted the father to know that every single patient got the same good care, whether that patient was able to experience it or not. What the researchers learned was that when janitors and technicians and nurses and phone operators and even doctors make these kind of contributions, it not only makes patients feel better, it actually improves the quality of the care that they receive. It turns out that janitors are part of God's work in the world. Who knew? Who knew? Brothers and sisters, my goal today is to offer you a theology of work uh, to think together with you about what it would mean for our whole lives, not just what we do for an hour on Sunday morning, but our whole lives to be part of God's mission in the world. Now, uh, during this series, <clears throat> we're going to use the word work an awful lot, and I want to use that in, in a liberal sense to cover a lot of ideas uh, to mean all the things that we find to do with our hands 
or with our minds. Um, so yes, it's what we do nine to five, but it's also what we do at home and in our neighborhoods and in our relationships. And so whether you are gainfully employed or you are retired, whether you work inside the house or outside the house, uh, whether you are a student or a business owner, whatever it is you do with your hours and with your days, I want to help you think about how we do it for the glory of God and for the flourishing of human beings. You with me? Okay, I'm seeing some smiles. I'm seeing a few nods. Okay, good. Let's keep going, shall we? So we're going to read from Paul's letter to the church uh, at Thessalonica. This is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> Paul says, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, let me just acknowledge that um, not every Bible passage is perhaps as inspiring as every other Bible passage. When you first read this, it sounds a little dreary, it sounds a little ordinary, maybe even moralistic, right? Like, be good people, do good things. And, and I, I like to imagine the church lady saying these words. Do you, how many of you remember the church lady from Saturday Night Live? Yeah, some of us who grew up like in the 90s, uh, this was on us. This is a staple, Dana Carvey's character. And she would say, uh, well, isn't that special, right? And you can just imagine her saying, look, people, work hard, you know, mind your own business, you know, uh, do the thing that you're supposed to do, be quiet. That's just not that inspiring, is it? I mean, who wants to come to church and listen to a sermon about how we're supposed to work hard? I mean, goodness, I don't want to hear a sermon like that. In fact, I would dare say, if, if anything, most of us probably already work too hard. We don't need to hear a, a sermon about working harder. Uh, so rather than a sermon about that, how about a sermon about finding meaning in our work? How about a sermon about finding joy in what we do every day and thinking about it in the context of what God is doing in the world. I want to suggest to you, friends, this is sorely needed. Uh, we need meaning and joy in our work. According to the Washington Post, only half of Americans are satisfied in their work. Okay? So that means 50% of us sitting here are satisfied and the rest are not. Right? Uh, we, we, uh, we need to hear a good word about joy and meaning in our work. Uh, there is a point that we come to in our life and hopefully it's earlier rather than later, when we realize the paycheck is just not enough, is it? Money is not enough to get us out of bed every day to do what we do with our lives because there's just not satisfaction in the dollar. I mean, yes, we need money, and yes, we have bills to pay, but that's not enough, is it? So let me offer you this morning uh, three theological principles from Paul's teaching to the Thessalonians about how we think about our work. Now, some of these teachings I have gleaned from a pastor named Reverend Tim Keller, who is the pastor at Redeemer Church in New York City. He's written a great book called Every Good Endeavor, and he lays out some of these ideas. So three theological principles. And the first one is this. The reason to work is to help others. The, function, the functional reason to do any job that we would do, any activity in your life, is to serve other people. So ask yourself... Do my daily activities make me useful 
to others, right? Now, that's, I know that's very practical. It kind of makes us sound like a tool in God's toolbox. Well, guess what? We are tools in God's toolbox. God wants to use us. And uh, the question is, do my daily activities make me useful to other people? Now, if that sounds too humanistic to you, like, oh, it's all about people, remember this. God is madly in love with human beings, enough that the Father sent the Son to give his life for you. And that same Son commanded you to love your neighbors, okay? So what Paul's saying here is there is a way to love our neighbors, and it is through service. It is through our work. Now, this is easy to miss because when you're reading from this passage in Thessalonians, it kind of looks like verses 9 and 10 are about one thing, and 11 and 12 are about something else. Uh, But in fact, they're all about the same thing. Um, Paul wrote very long sentences. If you study the Bible very much in Paul's letters, you see he wrote these really long sentences, and so translators came along and they added punctuation, you know, periods, you know, take a breath here, Paul, and they added chapter uh, numbers and verse numbers. How many of you know that chapter and verse numbers were actually added after the manuscripts were originally written and they were done by translators later? Yeah, so those weren't part of the original manuscripts. That's that's, uh, something that some of us didn't realize, perhaps. Uh, But what that means is some of those chapter and verses are a little more helpful at breaking up the text, and others may be a little bit less helpful. So we just need to go in kind of understanding that. So you read it, and you read, okay, verses 9 and 10, they're about love, and verses 11 and 12 seem to be about work, two different subjects. No, no, Paul is making one single argument. He starts out saying, I don't need to write you about love because you're already loving. He's saying, you get it. You love one another and all the people in your region. And then he says, yet, and this is the beginning of this long sentence, starting in verse 11 and going over to verse 12. He says, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, making it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and you should work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Okay, so Paul says, do so more and more. Do what more and more? Love, right? That's how he starts the passage, right? Love. He says, love more and more. Now, how are we to love, Paul says? Through our work, through our work. So work becomes the way that we love our neighbors. Paul says, so that... Your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Okay, respect for what? Respect for us? Eh, Not so much respect for us. Respect for the gospel. So that when you get around to sharing the name of Jesus with your neighbors and coworkers, they will believe that your message has authenticity because it matches with how you live. Paul says, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Okay, the idea is, uh, in other words, the disciples of Jesus ought not to be a drain on society. We ought to be contributors to it, right? We are investing in the common good. We're not taking away something from culture. We're, we're adding something. We are, we're adding something positive. We're contributing. So now, ideally, we could all find jobs in which we are able to serve other people and make a lot of money at the same time. Wouldn't that be great? That would be great. But, friends, here's the deal. Sometimes we have to choose, some of us. And if you have to choose between making a lot of money or doing something that is going to serve and benefit others, let me encourage you, choose the second one. Choose the job that is going to allow you to serve and make a difference in the lives of other people, even if the pay is not so great. Now, 
Some of us, as we think about what it means to serve and make a difference in the lives of others, it's hard for us to see the connections because we have defined service so narrowly. We have said, oh, mission, I know what mission is. That's those guys who are going on that trip to Puerto Rico, right? That's mission. Yeah, that's part of it. But mission is so much bigger and broader than that. And so some of us might say, oh, well, you know, all I do is fix air conditioners. You know, all I do is I just make chairs or, you know, I'm on the maintenance crew for VDOT. Uh, If I really wanted to help people, I would get a job in downtown Lynchburg helping to end homelessness, right? That That would be real mission work. Friends, please understand this. All work that is good work helps others. All work that is good work helps others. Where would we be in our life without those who take the trash away from our house? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about what your life would be like if there was no one to take away your trash? Where would we be without the uh, air conditioner repair person? When it gets to be the middle of July and it's 95 degrees out and your air conditioning breaks, aren't you glad to see that person show up on your doorstep? Life is vastly different when that person comes to serve you. Uh, How about um, when you go on vacation and you go to the beach and maybe some of you are going to the beach today or this week and you can get to the beach from here in like four hours or five hours or six hours and why? Because we have roads. Do you ever imagine how long it would take to get to the beach without roads? It would take you weeks, wouldn't it? It would take, I mean, imagine all that stuff you bring with you especially and you know, dad has a huge backpack full of like floats and uh, you know, uh, board, uh, surfboards and all this stuff. Think about all the people it takes to, just for the roads to work, right? Someone to build the roads, someone to maintain the roads, someone to police the roads, someone to sweep the roads. All of these people are contributing to the common good. All work that is good work helps others, and it is an expression of our love for our neighbor. Okay, second theological principle. It's found in verse 11. Paul keeps going. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. Okay, make it your ambition. That is, strive for a quiet life. Strive for rest. Pursue peace. Pursue contentment. Don't be striving after all those things or just the big paycheck. Strive after quietness and peace and contentment. And then he says, you should mind your own business. Now, that is a loaded phrase for us, isn't it? That is an idiom in our American culture, in our English language. And what we take it to mean is, leave me alone, right? Buzz off, get out of here, mind your own business. That is not what Paul means, friends. Uh, This is not an American idiom. This is Paul saying, literally in the Greek, do your own thing. This is Paul saying, attend to your own affairs. In other words, you should do the work that you are uniquely gifted and qualified for. And this is our second practical guideline. Your work should reflect who you are. Your work should reflect who you are. We use a word like vocation to talk about what we do with our daily lives, friends. The word vocation simply means calling. Each of us is called by God into some kind of work. And ideally, your work matches with your interests and your abilities and your talents and your passions and your spiritual gifts. You see, God calls and equips each of us for some particular kind of work. And we know from experience that when our work matches with what we're interested in and what we love to do and what we're good at, you know what the result is? Peace, right? We have 
peace. And we know the opposite is true also. When we get a job that's really just not a good fit for us, we are agitated and we are restless and we are angry and we are unhappy. Now, this doesn't mean that you, you can or should only do one job, that there's only one perfect fit. No, you are talented people. I've met you and I know you, and I know you can do a lot of different things. Uh, but the idea is that each of us has a set of gifts and abilities that make us better at some things than at others. So ask yourself some questions. What is it that puts a fire in my belly? What am I passionate about? What gets me revved up and going in the morning? Uh, what is the one thing I have to accomplish before I die? Okay, and then a second set of questions. Of these passions, which ones are the ones where I can actually make the biggest difference in the lives of other people? Which of these passions would allow me to contribute more peace and more joy and more justice to the world around me? Now, at the intersection of these two things, okay, your passions and abilities on the one hand and your ability to, to help the lives of others on the other, at the intersection of these two things is your calling. This is where God calls you to be. And when you find that place, friends, you have peace. Now, why do you have peace? Because you're living in the center of God's will, as opposed to resisting God's will. At the intersection of these two things, your passions and what the world needs from you is your calling. I remember when I was a teenager, my first real job was as a busboy at a seafood restaurant, Chesapeake Bay Seafood House. I think they went out of business, but uh, man, I was grateful for the job. Not the best job ever, you know, uh, kind of hard work, backbreaking work. Um, but uh, looking back, I can see, okay, that was not the perfect fit for my use of my gifts and what I'm good at, um, but it was, it was my, my first job and I was glad to have it. As I moved through life, I came to increasingly better fits with my calling and my gifts. And so my next job after that was working for the Association for Retarded Citizens, working with adults with disabilities. And my next job after that was working as a drug abuse counselor. And my next job after that was this one, uh, working as a pastor. Now, here's the thing also that I am aware of. With each of those jobs, whether I thought of them as the perfect fit or not, I had an opportunity to serve the people around me, right? So they might be restaurant customers, or they might be adults with intellectual disabilities, or they might be teenagers who are addicted to drugs, or they might be church people like you. But each job I had an opportunity, whether I loved the job or not, I had a chance to express my love to people by serving them in these ways. Okay, third theological principle, continuing on with verse 11. Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. Now, why does Paul go out of his way to say, work with your hands? Bible commentators agree that this was, for Paul, a smack in the face of the popular notions of the time held by the Greeks and the Romans that uh, the best work was work of the mind that uh, work that you did with your hands was considered uh, dishonorable, it was considered corrupt, manual labor was considered less than, and anyone who was anyone would be working with their mind doing intellectual work. Remember last week we talked about the heresy of docetism? 
Docetism says that the material world is evil, only the spiritual is good. Therefore, the Docetists said that Jesus didn't actually become human because that's beneath God. He was just a spiritual kind of like a, an apparition or, or a hologram. Uh, and so Paul, over against this idea uh, that was held by the Greeks and the Romans, Paul goes out of his way to say, work with your hands. He's saying to the Christians, just because you live in a society that thinks manual labor is degrading or that thinks you should work mainly just for the paycheck, you don't have to live that way. The work that we get to do with our hands, not only is it not degrading, it is the work of God. Now, how do we know that? Well, William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, wrote a book called Christianity and Social Order, and he makes this argument, and he says in his book, he says, look at the Bible. Creation, incarnation, resurrection. What do these all have in common? God with his hands in the dirt. Creation, incarnation, resurrection. So in creation, God is making something out of nothing. God is digging in the dirt to make a garden. God takes the dust of the earth, breathes into it, the breath of life makes a man and a woman. In incarnation, God actually takes on flesh, on body and skin and blood and hair in the person of Jesus Christ. And in resurrection, God redeems what is material. God redeems the physical and says, this is good and right. God with his hands in the dirt, friends. Paul is clear. We have a God, we worship a God who loves the material world. And it makes sense because God made the material world. So why wouldn't God love what God has made? And God then takes this extra step of grace to invite us to join God in this work of creating and recreating what has been made. Therefore, all work has dignity. All work has value. All work has meaning. And this is our third theological principle. All work has meaning because it is part of God's work. Think about it. Jesus was a carpenter. Okay, before he was a missionary, before he was a rabbi, for many more years than that of his work as a missionary and rabbi, he was a carpenter. Paul. Paul was a tent maker. How about Mary? Mary's greatest contribution to this world was as a mother. Isn't that extraordinary? All work has meaning because it is part of God's work. So those who manufacture goods and those who repair cars and those who work with nuclear power and those who teach children and those who crunch numbers, you are bringing order out of chaos. And this is what God does in making the world, isn't it? God brings order out of chaos. And so whether you are sweeping the streets or preaching a sermon, you are partnering with God to bring order out of chaos. You see, friends, God's work of salvation is not to redeem us out from this world, but to redeem us for this world. You see, in the last days, heaven is coming to earth. We believe in the second coming, that Jesus is coming back again, and he's bringing heaven with him. God invented souls, and God invented bodies, and God is loving souls, and God is loving bodies, and God is redeeming souls, and God is redeeming bodies. Therefore, all of our human striving is valuable and is pleasing to God. I want to finish with the 
with a quotation. Uh, they say you're not supposed to finish with someone else's words, but um, I'm going to tell you Martin Luther's words, and he's way smarter than me. So I'm going to finish with Martin Luther's words. Martin Luther was a reformer, um, helped transform the church, and uh, one of his big critiques was that um, the church at that time seemed to believe that only a special class of holy men could encounter God, and everyone else was sort of dependent on that special class of men to be able to talk to God. They were the priests. And uh, Luther said, no way, that's not right at all. He said, if you look in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Peter, it says that we are all priests, that we are a royal priesthood, and that every believer, as a result, can participate in God's work in the world. So look at, look at what uh, Martin Luther said. It is pure invention, that is fiction, that bishops, priests, and monks are called the, quote, spiritual estate, while princes, artisans, and farmers are called the, quote, temporal estate. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy, yet no one need be intimidated by it, and that for this reason. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them except that of office. We are all consecrated priests by baptism. As St. Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. Friends, by virtue of your baptism, you are a missionary and a minister of the gospel. You don't have to have a job standing in front of people preaching from the Bible. Wherever it is you are and work and live is where God has called you to be, to make a difference in the lives of people, to use your best gifts, and to do God's work in the world. Let God's people say amen.